This is exactly right. Case Files, an award-winning podcast, presents unforgettable true crime stories. Presented by an anonymous host, Case File delves deep into the crimes, investigations, and trials of solved and cold cases from around the world. With more than 250 episodes, the podcast has covered infamous unsolved mysteries, notorious murders, and lesser-known cases that deserve more attention. Discover why everyone from Rolling Stone to Time Magazine is calling it a must-listen experience. Follow Case File wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson. I'm a journalist who spent the last 25 years writing about true crime. And I'm Paul Holes, a retired cold case investigator who's worked some of America's most complicated cases and solved them. Each week, I present Paul with one of history's most compelling true crimes. And I weigh in using modern forensic techniques to bring new insights to old mysteries. Together, using our individual expertise, we're examining historical true crime cases through a 21st century lens. Some are solved, and some are cold. Very cold. This is Buried Bones. Hey, Kate. Hey, Paul. How are you? I am doing good. I've got my Cava drink. I'm nice and mellow. Good boy. <laughs> we, we like you mellow. <laughs> I'm going to sit back and, and, and looking forward to hearing a story. How are things going with you? They're going okay. I have a Ruby story. I don't know if it's amusing. I guess I think it's funny. The girls like to spend the night at my parents' house sometimes just as a sleepover, and they occasionally like for me to come and sleep in the big bed, and we get to hang out and, and spend some time with my folks. And my parents live, I always say, my parents live a Taylor Swift song away from us. <laughs> it's about <laughs> three and a half to four minutes oh. away from us. Yeah, very close. We bought this house in the neighborhood so I could be closer to my folks. And we were over there one night very recently. And we brought Ruby with us, you know, our dog, or Cavapoo. Bailey is being trained somewhere, some mysterious place, so that we, we can stop the madness of all the biting and everything that she does. So we, we're yeah. sending, we've sent her off to a short-term boarding school I'm very happy with. So Ruby spends the night, and she's very, very anxious at my parents' house. She's sort of roaming the halls, even though I always try to get her to sleep with us. She's roaming the halls, and she starts scratching at me, wanting to go to the restroom at 3.30 in the morning which is unusual. She usually sleeps through the whole night. And I thought, okay, well, if she's really that anxious, maybe she does need to go legitimately to the potty. So I throw on some pants and I go downstairs and I turn off the alarm and I have a kid sleeping on the sofa downstairs who sleeps through all of this. And Ruby's very happy to go outside and I open up the door and she does not need to go to the restroom, apparently. She wants to chase an animal. And we don't really have animals in our backyard. We have a very foresty backyard, but we're fenced in. And I've put down some like wire mesh stuff that won't cut the dogs. It's really for gardening, but it really does stop all of the animals from coming in and out. We have a lot of armadillos and raccoons and possums and stuff like that. My parents, I did not know, have skunks. Oh, <laughs> Okay. I can see where this is going. Yeah. No, no place good. No. <laughs> it was 
awful. She was sprayed by this skunk and was confused and didn't know what to do. And it's in the dark. And I went running out there with a piece of cheese because that's the only thing that gets this stupid dog's attention is cheese sometimes. So I ran out there with a piece of cheese and grabbed her. And it was the worst smell I've ever smelled in my life. Have you? Do you all have skunks in Colorado? We do, uh, though they're they're relatively rare. You know, in my neighborhood, I've I've seen one in my backyard. I've smelled them. I've seen roadkill, but relative to California, where I used to live, I mean, they were all over the place there. I thought there'd be a lot more skunks where I'm at. Oh, well, we have a lot apparently. At least in my mom's backyard, <laughs> there must be a den yeah. because she got sprayed, and we took her up. And I thought, okay, tomato sauce or tomato juice. And I read on the internet that that's actually a myth. That's not the thing to use. Oh, it said to use a dish soap because the spray from a skunk is oily, apparently, and dish soap is the thing to use. And I thought, there's no way. I don't want to wash my dog with dish soap. But we were desperate. It was the most disgusting smell ever. Yeah. And she was very mad. And I ended up taking her to the vet a few days later. But she didn't have any scratches. It didn't look like they had a physical confrontation other than the the defense mechanism of the skunk. Yes. So I, I washed her with Dawn. My parents had some Dawn. It took, I would bet... 80% of the smell away. And then we then washed her with her sort of like organic oatmeal-based shampoo and conditioner. And now she's got a little funk about her, but it almost smells more like she's been near an open fire rather than sprayed by the stinkiest animal on the planet. And I took her to the vet because I was concerned. Does she have it in her eyes? Is she okay? And the vet checked her out and said she's perfect. But the vet said, boy, I just almost didn't believe you because... We had a dog in here a couple of weeks ago, and you could still smell the skunk. And I said, Dawn, <laughs> it, is, <laughs> it is that dish soap. And I had never heard of that as a remedy. But if you do run into, if Cora runs into one of those mysterious skunks, now you know. Yeah, you know, that is such a pungent smell. You know, fortunately, Cora, surprisingly, does not chase many animals. Except bears. Yes. That is the problem. <laughs> you know, she, deer, no problem. Bunny rabbits all over the place. She doesn't pay any attention. I don't think she would go after a skunk, but she goes after the largest, meanest animal in Colorado. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you got to love Cora. Yeah. Okay. Let's get going on this case because, boy... This case was a humdinger for me. It is very intensive, and it's a big mystery up until the end. I think there's a lot of profiling here, not so much of the forensic evidence, but more of the profiling and who the hell could do this. All right. And this is in 1980s. This is the most contemporary case that we've done. And I am, you know, deterred from doing those because I think that those are cases that we hear about. But this was a newish case for me, probably some of our listeners have heard of it, but boy, it felt unusual. So let's go ahead and get going and let's set the scene. So this takes place in 1984 and it takes place in Iowa. So I've never been to Iowa. I always ask you this. Have you been to Iowa? 
I actually have. I did a a case in Iowa for a TV show. What was the case? Well, it's a case. It was a a double homicide in 1980, and it was in Williamsburg, Iowa. And it was a couple, man and woman, who were hatcheted to death in their hotel bed. Wow. Crazy case. What was surprising to me is I always had this vision of Iowa as being flat and nothing but cornfields. And this part of Iowa, and I, you know, flew into Cedar Rapids, drove out to Williamsburg, and then ultimately had to drive down to Missouri, where the couple had originated from. And I was so pleasantly surprised. The area where we were at, rolling Mm -hmm. hills, farmland, barns, it was just beautiful. Mm -hmm. I completely had a different perception of Iowa than what I experienced. Well, this is in a very rural part of Iowa in Wapello County, and it's in the rural southeastern part of Iowa. And the main scene here is a mobile home. So let's talk first about mobile homes as crime scenes. Is there a negative or a positive? I guess there's a smaller space to work with if there's something that happens inside the mobile home. I wouldn't say there's anything one way or the other it's it's another scene but usually mobile homes of course are are small uh, and that limits the amount of uh, geography that needs to be covered in, in terms of of the the scene work uh, but because it's so small it can be so cramped that evidence is just it's tough to kind of document mm-hmm And I had also wondered if certain older, and we're talking about the 1980s, if these older mobile homes were sealed as well, like they're not insulated necessarily, right? You know, there is some insulation in these mobile homes, but relative to houses, they are not very well insulated. You know, the walls are thinner. So, you know, if you're starting to, to get into, you know, can something be heard? You know, from the outside inside the mobile home or the opposite, I would say, yeah, you're more likely to hear something coming out of a mobile home than coming out of a house if it's fully closed up. Mm-hmm. So the reason that we're talking about this mobile home is firefighters on April 12th of 1984 respond to an active fire at this home. The home is about 100 feet off of a gravel road that people travel on often. And the mobile home has nearly been burnt to the ground. Firefighters have a difficult time navigating all of this because there are reportedly 40 junked cars, countless old refrigerators, washing machines, television sets, bicycles, lawnmowers. I mean, everything that you can think of that you can see from the road that is piled in this area. Yeah. So let me show you a photo because there is a body amongst all of this, just because I want you to see what firefighters were were dealing with, because they missed something that's very important. You can see the mobile home to the right, and it is a, this is a mess. They're calling that a mobile home? I mean, I think so, unless the stuff that you see on the left is the mobile home. I see a television I see a lot of stuff that just looks destroyed. Yeah. If you're saying that this thing was burned down to the ground, that kind of amorphous metal mass on the left-hand side is likely the remnants of the mobile home. Mm-hmm. And then you you have other standing structures that look like more, I mean, they're poorly built, they're old, but they look like permanent structures on this, this land. Hmm. Can you understand looking at this picture why firefighters in their efforts to put out this fire, rural area firefighters in their efforts to put out this fire, could miss a body. 
on the property. No, absolutely. Having worked homicides that involved arson, you know, after the case and seeing how destructive a fire is, it is very easy to miss a body. It takes a very diligent search oftentimes to locate a body amongst all the burnt debris. And what most people don't realize is that if the body has been subjected to the fire itself, the body does not look like a body Hmm. anymore. It changes dramatically. And so this is where working with, uh, like in California, you know, very experienced uh, uh, arson investigators from the state uh, fire marshal's office, or even the the, the local fire department arson investigators, you have these individuals who are experienced at looking at the world after it has been burned. And even everyday objects, after they have burned and melted, the inner components, some of the inner components are still present, but it's not something most people ever see. Mm-hmm. These guys are, are able to go through and say, oh, that's an old rotary dial phone. Oh, there, there's a radio over there, you know, versus mm-hmm. to my eyes, it's just a black molten mess. You know, so it is, you know, when you start talking about a body, depending on the situation, oftentimes it can be very hard to find a body in a mobile home that has been completely burned down to the ground. Well, let me tell you a little secret I have. Number one, the body was in the driveway, not inside the mobile home. And number two, I know you're laughing. Sorry, Paul. And number two, it wasn't burned at all. That wasn't the cause of death. Not a burn mark on this guy. Now you want to know more. I see that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so, you know, of course, the the firemen are responding out. Their, Their focus is the fire. Is this body laying on the driveway something within their you know, view or is this a fresh body? Does it look like somebody's just sleeping there? I, I don't know. You know, that was not what I was expecting. Which I'm glad that I fooled you there because it was really good to hear that somebody professionally trained like a firefighter might not have picked up on a body that had been inside. I thought it would be obvious, but in this case, this was a body that was on the driveway that was just sort of surrounded by so much junk. I just don't think it was their focus, and they missed it. They missed the body, even though he hadn't been burned. And the person who found the body was a man who came over onto the property the next day because he wanted to pull into the driveway because he had seen all this junk. And, you know, he was just sort of curious about the fire and what was going to happen to this junk and could he buy any of it. And he finds this dead body. I know this is what you get for being curious. You find a dead body in the driveway. Sure. And the body is of the owner of the mobile home, which is a a 20-year-old man named Justin Hook Jr. His family owns the property. He's been living there. And his body is located about 200 to 300 feet away from the mobile home itself. So it is not right on the road, this driveway. It's sort of, I'm picturing kind of a very long driveway that perhaps even goes around the the mobile home. He's not front and center. So I think we can forgive the firefighters for not finding him when they're focused on this terrible fire happening. Yeah, no, for sure. You know, that's not their focus. If they never even drove past the location where his body was at, they came out, did their mission and left. Yep. And it sounds like for the case, we're fortunate that this junk collector decided to stop by and discover the body sooner than maybe it would have been discovered. Because now as that body's laying there, 
you're going to be losing evidence as it decomposes and time from, I'm assuming this is a homicide case, time from the commission of the homicide to the time autopsy and evidence collection crime scene processing could have been much more delayed. And I have always dismissed the idea that there's so much junk that you can't see. And that was remedied when I started writing my first book, which was Death in the Air, about serial killer John Reginald Christie and how he had buried two women in his backyard. And when his neighbor was being investigated by the police, unbeknownst to the police, John Christie was a serial killer. They go into the backyard and there's so much junk that they missed that Christie had taken one of the femurs from one of the women he had buried and used it to prop up a fence. Mm -hmm. They walked right past it. I just thought, this is Keystone Cops. I can't even believe that happened. But then I saw the photos and I thought, oh boy, I mean, they're just these guys are just trying not to get tetanus. So now I have more empathy about that. It is so common to go into these junky environments. You have notably, you know, something like in the J.C. Dugard case. You know, this was uh, she was a, a young girl up in Tahoe that Phil and Nancy Garrido abducted, and then she, turns out she was found alive in my jurisdiction. And I spent two weeks on Garrido's property, and he had a couple of acres filled with junk. And that's where JC and her daughters were being raised, you know, and it was just like, this is crazy. We had to bring in bulldozers in order to go through this property. Wow. Yeah. I just didn't expect it. I didn't expect it to be that much of an issue. But after seeing the photos, I can see. Let's talk about the cause of death, because I know that's one of your favorite things to talk about. So Justin, as I mentioned, didn't have any burns on him. He died from severe head wounds bludgeon to death, heavy blows to the head and to the neck. The sheriff was not sure if this was connected to the actual fire. I don't really see, just because he wasn't burned doesn't mean that this was not connected to the fire. And I don't know how important it is. Do you buy that? Just because Justin wasn't burned doesn't mean that the fire is connected to this murder. Well, it's awfully coincidental that the yeah. fire to the mobile home where, where this 20-year-old lived, you know, is, is occurring and he's dead. So I, going into this scene, this type of investigation, would have to make an investigative path, assuming, you know, it's not restricted to, but assuming that there is a chance that the fire was set as a result of this homicide or vice versa. Yeah. They're likely related to the offenders, you know, commit arson. And why did they commit arson? What are they trying to burn down? Is there something that could be linked to them? Or are they trying to send a message to somebody else? Right. And they've also killed Justin or something along those lines. So the sheriff has a problem in that there is not very much forensic evidence to be gathered at this scene. We know that fire is not an investigator's friend many times. They don't find a weapon. They don't find shoe prints. They don't find tire tracks. They don't know how the fire started, whether it was intentional or not. The kind of the the source of ignition is often critical to determine. You know, it's are you dealing with something that just because Justin was killed, he's no longer maybe the space heater that he was using or whatever device ends up overheating and, and it's just an accidental fire, but you still have the homicide. Mm-hmm. Or did the offenders purposefully set a fire inside this mobile home, either using an accelerant or, you know, utilizing some other type of mechanism in order to do it. But if you have experienced arson investigators and they're going, well, we can't determine how this fire started, that tells me that pretty much this whole thing was just completely burned up. 
If you're going to bother setting a mobile home on fire, why not put his body in there to cover up some of the evidence? It all depends on on the circumstances. You know, right now, you've told me Justin's been bludgeoned to death and he's laying on this driveway. Mm -hmm. But was he bludgeoned to death on the driveway? Is there evidence that that's where he was killed? Was he killed inside the mobile home? You know, did his injuries incapacitate him or was he able to actually run out of the mobile home before the fire really took hold and then he expired out on the driveway? Right. Well, let me give you some more information about Justin. Justin seems to be a pretty happy-go-lucky guy. He got married when he was 16. Remember, he's 20. And then just recently got divorced and got himself a new fiancé named Tina. He has a mother and he has a stepfather, and they live about 40 miles away. So those are kind of the main players here when we're determining what's going to happen moving forward. Because, boy, this is about to be a long road for us. Hmm. The police, of course, determine this is murder. They are investigating as much as they can, but the sheriff has very few leads. He doesn't seem to have any real enemies that they know of yet. So they decide they want to go and, of course, do a death notification to Sarah Link, who is the 41-year-old mother, and her husband, Rex. So they drive out to Farmington, Iowa, and they attempt to do this notification. Have you done these before? This was not your job, was it? No, no. I've never had to do a death notification, and thank God I didn't have to do that. I had a a mom, I had a 15-year-old girl that was shot inside a house, and while I was out there, the mom came up to me, and then th- and during the conversation, she asked me, please tell me my daughter didn't suffer, mm. you know, um, and that's such a hard thing to have to deal with. But the death investigators, uh, the other investigators that are the first ones to tell a family that their loved one has, has died, and not only have they died, but they've either been killed in a car accident or victims of homicide. Imagine how tough that is for those people to have to do those. Horrific. And I'm sure they were not looking forward to doing this. They arrive in Farmington to talk to Sarah Link, Justin's mother, and they encounter Rex, who is his stepfather. And they say, we want to talk to Sarah. We have something to tell both of you. And Rex says, I haven't seen Sarah for several days. And as a matter of fact, I contacted my police here in Farmington and I reported her missing. So now we have a dead son and a missing mom. Okay. So Rex says that he had last seen his wife, Sarah, Thursday night, which is the night of Justin's fire at the mobile home. So Rex says he left for his night shift. He said goodbye to Sarah. He doesn't know where she went, but she does go to visit Justin at the mobile home. So Sarah wasn't home when he returned Friday morning from his night shift, and that's when he called the police. I mean, that just sounds uh, to me unbelievable. His stepson is dead, and now his wife is missing. Sure. You know, but here, this is where, okay, he's put an alibi forward. Mm -hmm. Now investigators are going to have to verify that alibi. And it needs to be more than, you know, a coworker who's friends of Rex saying, yeah, Rex was here. You know, do we see him? This is in 1984. Mm-hmm. So, you know, th- there was, uh, you know, video surveillance. Uh, there's, uh, you know, the time cards being stamped. There's, you know, probably multiple co-workers. You know, they need to be able to truly establish Rex was at work the entire shift. Mm-hmm. 
you know, because of course, you know, it's his wife and her kid that, you know, is dead. Wife is gone and, and, and Justin is dead. He is going to be somebody that has to be eliminated very early on in this case. Well, before we talk about Rex and suspects and all of that, let's continue on because there are some other things that come up. We have a discovery of a body, and it happens four days after Justin's fire. A farmer calls the police about 15 miles away from Justin's mobile home because there is a woman's body on his property. It is Sarah, the mother, and just like Justin, her son, she was killed by blows to the head. This poor family, I mean, it's terrible. This starts getting, you know, kind of intriguing from, I, I think you mentioned that Sarah did go to her son's that night, right? Rex isn't sure, but it would have been oh. her habit to have done that. He would not be surprised either way, is what he said. Okay. So if Sarah and Justin are together at Justin's property, and then Sarah is the one that is taken away from that property by the offenders. You know, that's significant to me. Mm-hmm. That tends to indicate to me that there's an aspect of Sarah, whether it be a sexually motivated crime or she's targeted for some other reason. But she is the primary reason the offenders were at that property. Justin was eliminated. Right. So they start looking for forensic evidence around this area where Sarah was found because you remember that there was not very much to be found at the mobile home where Justin was. So they find two sets of shoe prints nearby, and they feel confident that these were shoe prints that would have been right by the body or right under the body. They, for whatever reason, feel confident that these belong to the killer. Two sets. So they're saying two men is what they think happened. So Rex and someone else? or not Rex and two people we don't know about yet. There are a lot of possibilities, even if they're right, about these two sets of shoe prints definitively belonging to the killers of Sarah and probably Justin. Sure. And, you know, you you mentioned they didn't find much at Justin's mobile home because it's been burned. Right. But they still have Justin's body. Mm -hmm. Justin's body, we know the offender or offenders very closely interacted with him because he's bludgeoned to death. Mm -hmm. His body is a crime scene, you know, so hopefully, you know, they collected as much evidence from Justin's body as possible, his clothing, body surfaces, fingernails, who knows what other evidence may be their trace, as well as with Sarah's body. You know, she's dumped out in the middle of the field, but this is something we deal with. It may not be where she was killed, but there's a lot of evidence that possibly can be found that can identify the offenders. You know, so that's where hopefully they did process these these bodies very thoroughly. Well, I will say, Sarah, they did not find semen on her. They did not find definitive evidence of sexual assault. We know that doesn't mean anything. But something that happens later on will give us some more clarity on that. Okay. They believe that Sarah tried to run away because both of her shoes had fallen off and were in different locations. They didn't see any drag marks. And near her body is a small pile of brush that had been splotched with some dried blood. It seems like they collected it, but I don't see what they did with it after that. But they are collecting things is what I'm trying to say. Right. You know, and and part of like when I get involved with a case, part of what I do is I I take a look at the investigating agency in terms of, you know, size of agency, 
their crime rate, the types of crimes they are used to dealing with. It informs me about their experience. Do they have dedicated homicide investigators? Mm-hmm. Do they have general investigators? Or are they a force of maybe 10 patrol officers, and these guys are the ones responsible for investigating the case? How competent are their CSIs? You know, and, and then that, as I assess the agency, that informs me of what I possibly can expect and not to expect in terms of how well the case was handled from the very beginning. You brought up that this was a very rural location. Mm-hmm. And so my expectation is, is that uh, this investigating agency probably is not used to dealing with this type of crime. I do know in Iowa sometimes, uh, in fact, I think in that one case that I did in Iowa, they recognized their inexperience pretty early on and brought in the state. The issue with that oftentimes is that state police, their primary function in many states is patrol, patrolling the highways. That's their experience. Mm -hmm. And then they're assigned to the violent crime unit and they have no real experience and they don't handle a lot of cases because they're just covering the rural areas of the state. Yeah. Well, at least they're trying. They're trying to collect physical evidence, which is good. And it's very helpful later on. As we move through this story, we have Sarah, the mother, we have Justin, the son, we have a fire, we have Rex, who we'll find out whether or not he has a confirmed alibi later on. We have one more problem. You remember that I said that Justin had been married and then divorced, and now he has this new fiance, whose name is Tina. She's 19 years old. Tina is missing, too. This is not sounding good for Tina. Do we know, was Tina uh, at the property the night of the fire? We're not sure, but it sure sounds like it because they take a look at the farmland where Sarah's body was found. And two days later, about a half a mile away from Sarah, they find Tina's body. Same method of murder, heavy blows to the head. She had been sexually assaulted. Yeah. They found semen inside her jeans, which they collected because it will be helpful later on. Okay, so with the assumption that Justin, Sarah, and Tina are all on Justin's property Mm -hmm. the night of the fire, the male is killed on site, Mm -hmm. and then the two females are abducted. I don't know if they were killed on site and then their bodies dumped or if they're, you know, taken to another location, killed inside a vehicle, bodies dumped, who knows. But obviously, the females were, were more of the target. And with the overt sexual acts on Tina, the younger woman, mm-hmm. there does appear to be a uh, a targeted sexual motivation towards Tina. Right. So the case gets very complicated for police. They think they have at least a little tiny bit of a lead. There are shoe prints that are at both Tina's location and Sarah's location that appear to match. They had also, at this point, found tread marks from a car at both locations that appeared to match. I do not know where they were murdered. I do know that there was blood at Sarah's location that, of course, we know that could have just been blood dripping out. It doesn't mean that's where she was killed, but I'm not sure it matters at this point. The big thing is, who are our suspects? Because I will tell you this, police said it was not Rex. Okay. They believed it was two people, and they believed that Rex had a pretty airtight alibi with an awful lot of people seeing him. So they are now looking at the troublemakers in town, and I still am in disbelief 
that there are strangers out there who would do this as a crime of opportunity. Three people, even if it's two guys, and they don't have a gun, Paul. They're using something to bludgeon these people. So the idea of appointing a gun to control people, I get. But what, a baseball bat or whatever they used? It just seems pretty risky. Well, you know, at this point, even though the victims were bludgeoned to death, we don't know everything about what the offenders had with them, who the offenders are. You have, in essence, Justin is is 20 years old, you know, part of victimology with Justin. Just because he's a man doesn't mean that he's somebody that is willing to fight. This is where, okay, is he an MMA guy? Is he very aggressive? Or is he more of a, a docile, more of a passive male that would probably just, if he's commanded to do something, by two other guys, you know, he would just do what they say. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the assessment of, okay, how would the offenders have gained control of these three adults? And of course, having two men show up at your mobile home and each man is is holding a baseball bat, that is a form of control. You know, I think those two men would control these three adults. Okay. You know, but now it's in, in terms of, you know, assessing this case on one end, of course, is the, the absolute strangers, you know, and that this was, they're out on the prowl and they ran across this location and decided they were going to take advantage of these three people who were well off the beaten path out in this, this junky property. But then you have the other side in which are the offenders known to any of these three victims? Let's say Justin. We don't know much about Justin. Was he involved in the drug lifestyle? Did he have uh, any gambling debt? What's he involved with where maybe you have people who have bad intent going out to his property to maybe confront him? And then mom and Tina show up and they're going, you know what, not only are we going to get what we want out of Justin, but now we're going to have our way with these two women. Well, I'll tell you a little bit about Justin and Sarah and Tina and Rex. Just no red flags. Justin is described as good looking and well-liked. You know, he got married young. The divorce seemed okay. They have a young son together. Tina the fiance is 19. She's described as quiet. She dropped out of high school, worked some odd jobs. Sarah, the mom, is very hardworking, mother of three, close relationships with everybody. She does not have any problems, it sounds like, with Rex. Rex seems like a good guy. Everybody seems to get along. Nobody had any kind of troubling criminal record, although Justin had a couple of petty theft charges when he was very, very young. And so, of course, the police are hoping that somebody had some sort of red flag and and aren't finding anything. Okay. So that complicates things for us also is where would an enemy come from or is it simply a crime of opportunity for somebody who is just coming off of this main road and sees an isolated mobile home and three people potentially inside, including a young woman? Yeah. And and that's where you have three investigative paths checking into each of the victims' social circles Mm -hmm. and what they're involved with, then you have the investigative path of, is this the opportunist that has no relationship to the three victims? This is where now it is, you know, these investigators have a lot to do because they are going to be going down and trying to identify, is there a reason in any of these victims' past for them to have 
fallen victims and to pursue those leads, then you have the other thing that you need to be doing right away in terms of trying to ascertain if this is a crime of opportunity and there's no relationship, I now need to, you know, the canvas has to be done. You know, do we have any witnesses seeing a car coming and going? Do they have, you know, make model description of the car? Do they have any descriptors of who these people might be? Is there any, you know, video surveillance, Mm -hmm. you know, of businesses along the route that might have caught something or gas station, you know, video surveillance? So much work to do. There's a lot of footwork that needs to be done in this case early on. And they seem to be trying to do it. So to me, this is the benefit and the detriment of living in a small town area where we're even not talking about a town. We refer to this as a county, Wapello County, which I think means it's probably pretty small at this point. Yeah. The good part of this small county is that the police know all of the troublemakers. The bad thing about this small county is police know all of the troublemakers and you could get yourself locked in on a troublemaker, which is what happens. There's a man named Andrew Six. He is a local troublemaker, bad boy. He's been involved in a lot of different burglaries. And he's on the radar because he finds out that he and Justin have been arguing over payment of a vehicle. So my belief from that is that Justin had some vehicles on the property and they were perhaps arguing over that. But we do know that Andrew Six knows Justin. We don't know if he knows Sarah and Tina, but there is this rumbling of a dispute. And they say that this shoe print left on the farmland matches a shoe print owned by Andrew Six. And I don't know if there's I mean, we've talked about this before. If everybody's wearing Nike, how are you really going to use that as any kind of evidence whatsoever? And I don't think this is a guy who's ordering French loafers. Shoe impressions out where these bodies are located rarely have the detail in order to identify the shoes specifically, where all the various individualizing characteristics Mm -hmm. are present within that tread pattern are replicated within the impression itself. So chances are the best that they could say is that, well, he owns the same make model shoe of the approximate same size. But is this the Bruno Mowley, like in the O.J. Simpson case, in which only 200 pairs were ever made? (laughs) Or, you know, are these, you know, Nike Air, blah, 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 in which there's millions Chances are it's probably a fairly common athletic shoe or whatever type of shoe that you don't dismiss it, but it's something that's not really strong. You know, Andrew said, yes, we argued over money. It is not a big deal. I'm sorry the guy's dead. I've never met anybody else. And stop harassing me. And I absolutely understand that because they actually had a long list of people to harass. And eventually the sheriff gives up because they were never able to make a case. And this case goes cold with these three dead people, with Justin and Sarah and Tina in 1984. And it is, of course, very frustrating to the people in this county. And it's very frustrating for Rex, who has now seen two people and a future daughter-in-law murdered. So this has become a a source of frustration. This is also when things take a turn in that first investigation, unfortunately because of another pretty terrible investigation that comes up. So three years after this happens, it happened in 1984. Now we're talking about 1987. Still in Wapello County in Iowa. Three years after that triple homicide went cold, there's another incident in a home in 1987 
two men driving a station wagon pull into the driveway of the Allens, who are Donald and Janet. And they are in a mobile home park called Hidden Valley Mobile Home Park. They knock on the door. It's 10 o'clock. The family's asleep. And they come and say, these two men say, we want to test drive this pickup truck that the Allens are desperate to sell because Donald Allen needs to have open heart surgery in Texas. He had recently had a heart attack and they didn't have any money. So they have been really trying to sell this pickup truck and they were desperate. And so Donald was still trying to recover from this heart attack. And his wife, Janet, says, I will take you guys for a test drive inexplicably at 10 p.m. But that should show you how desperate they were for this money. Boy, somebody drives up to your mobile home at 10 p.m. That just seems like a disaster. But she did it. So Janet gets in the vehicle with these two men. Right. In her own vehicle, the truck that they're trying to sell. Right. Okay. And the man is driving. And by the time they return back to the mobile home, the men are holding a knife to Janet's throat. And they've used duct tape to bind her arms behind. Donald has been worried. He gets himself out of bed despite still trying to recover from this heart attack. He's in front of the house waiting for her to come back. And, of course, he is overpowered by the men, and they bind his arms also. The men go inside the house. These two guys go inside the house. They find Donald and Janet's teenage daughter, and she is six months pregnant, and they sexually assault her while also robbing the house. There is another child in the house who is a 12-year-old named Kathy Allen. She's a special education student at the local elementary school. And she is, of course, the daughter of the Allens. She wakes up. She's terrified. The offenders scream at Janet and Donald and say, tell her to shut up. Janet tries to calm Kathy down. It doesn't particularly work. The men try to get the family inside their station wagon. We don't know why, but Christine, the teenage daughter, and Donald break away from the attackers and they run to get help from the neighbors. The men turn to Janet and they slash her throat with a knife. She falls to the ground and they grab Kathy, the little girl, and they take off. So now you've got Janet on the ground. She survives having her throat cut She's taken to the hospital, and she survives. And the neighbors say it was the worst thing they had ever seen. But now their 12-year-old daughter is gone. Let's talk about the identity of the men, because they are known. Janet and Donald knew who they were, because they were both people from the county. One of them was 49-year-old Donald Pateri. And then he, along with him, had his nephew, who was a 22-year-old named Andrew Six. So this was the suspect from three years ago. Yeah, interesting. I'm going to make an assumption, and probably I shouldn't, but uh, <laughs> you know, this is the way these episodes play out. I'm, I'm going to assume that the, the 1984 and the 1987 cases are related. We have mobile homes in both cases. Mm-hmm. We have um, abduction of female in both cases, two men in both cases, based off shoe impression evidence in the first case. Mm -hmm. There is a dispute over a vehicle, payment for a vehicle in the first case, and there is this maybe a ruse that the offenders used in the second case over the sale of a vehicle. Mm -hmm. So I'm seeing now 
a pattern. Yes. And it sounds like Andrew knows everybody. I don't know how familiar he is with Janet and the two kids and even Donald, but they knew him. They were able to identify who he was just because he was around. Again, a benefit of being in a a small area, small community as people know each other. So the police report to Andrew's home and he has a common law wife named Betty. She says that Andrew just stopped by the house and switched cars. So both he and his uncle are now in this Mercury Lynx car, and they had a girl with them Mm -hmm. that Betty didn't recognize. We know that girl was Kathy. Law enforcement are tipped off, and, you know, people in Missouri and Texas are tipped off because there's family there, too. And they are just trying to figure out where these guys are headed. Andrew Six and his uncle are caught the very next day in Texas. And while they are being held by police, they say... Kathy Allen is dead, the 12-year-old, and they give a location for where she is, and that is in Missouri. They attempted to sexually assault her. They dumped her body in Missouri, and a highway patrolman found Kathy's body on a dirt road about 20 miles from the Iowa border in Missouri, and she is lying face down in a ditch covered with blood. And I'm not going to get into more. I have a lot of other details, but they're not necessary. No. Okay, so they, I'm assuming, are arresting Andrew and his uncle. Yep. They're basically confessing, caught red-handed in the 1987 case, surviving attempt homicide victim, Janet. Mm-hmm. The husband, Donald, he, he survived as well. He did, yes. Okay, yeah. So, th- I mean, this is an open and shut case because you have living primary victims in this case. So now they need to tie the uncle and Andrew to the 1984 case. Mm -hmm. They're worried more about 1987 right now. And I want them to tie these two guys to the 1984 case. But in 87, they go on trial for Kathy's murder. So here's what's quirky, I guess. Kathy was presumably murdered in Missouri where they found the body. So the men go on trial In Missouri. Missouri, sure. Missouri has the death penalty. Iowa did not. And so both men are sentenced to death once they're convicted. You know, before Andrew Six's execution, Iowa police try to get him to talk about the 1984 triple homicide of the mom and the son and the fiance. And he said, I don't know what you're talking about, and I'm not going to discuss it with you. But it is just torturous to Rex and the family and to the people in the area. They need healing, even though he is getting ready to be executed for Kathy's death. So in 1997, I mean, boy, that just shows you 10 years after his conviction, Andrew's 32 years old. And he's executed in 1997 by lethal injection. It just always reminds me how long it takes yeah. for this process to go through 10 years. He's on death row. And in, in many states, that process is even so much longer. I, I was actually surprised when you said he was coming up for execution within 10 years, to be frank. Hmm. You know, but now, of course, he's not cooperating related to the 1984 case. Is the uncle, he, the uncle's execution hasn't occurred yet? He actually died of health complications in 1998. So he was still on death row. Okay. So here now, it's going to be based upon physical evidence to try to tie the uncle and Andrew to the 1984 case. 
Yes. So I'll just tell you, to wrap up the execution, he was executed by lethal injection. Janet Allen, you know, the woman who he slashed her throat, drove seven hours to watch this execution happen. And I said the uncle had died of health complications the next year. So there's no justice for the people in this area, for these three people who were murdered in 1984. And everyone's convinced that Andrew Six, who is now dead, is involved. And it goes cold until 2011. And a cold case unit in Iowa takes another look at the case. And in 2012, they had a well-preserved semen sample that we talked about from Tina Lottie's genes. And they send it to the DCI Criminalistics Laboratory for further analysis. What is that? What is the DCI Criminalistics Laboratory? Do you know? Well, it's Division of Criminal Investigation is probably what DCI stands for. Mm -hmm. So that would be the Iowa State Division of Criminal Investigation. And then they have a forensic science component underneath that. Mm -hmm. Well, apparently, Andrew Six had been forced to give up his DNA after his 1987 arrest. So it was on file. And when the results come back from the semen sample taken from Tina's genes, it was a match. They said that the DNA profile belonged to Andrew Six. So there's the tie. The genesis of this was this dispute over money, it sounds like. That's what brought Andrew to the trailer that night to see these three people. And all of this came from this encounter. And maybe he had been thinking about it. I don't know. But it sounds like that really was a trigger, was this argument It would be interesting to see if the uncle and Andrew had, you know, other robbery victims, you know, where they basically committed a similar crime without doing the abduction, the sexual assault, the homicide. And then with this, this one case in 1984, they go there just expecting Justin. Mm -hmm. And there's these two women and they take out Justin and take Sarah and Tina, you know, in order to be able to uh, sexually assault them and and then kill them. And then three years later, maybe during a robbery spree, it appears that they were going to let Janet and, and Donald off, right? But then the young girl becomes available. Well, remember the big fight outside the car? They were trying to get everybody in the car. I have no idea why. They wanted everybody in the station wagon. So the teenager who they had sexually assaulted, Donald and Janet, the parents, and Kathy. And the teenager and Donald both broke away and went in different directions to alert the neighbors. And then they, you know, grabbed Kathy and tried to kill Janet. So my question mark is the uncle. Because there's no DNA from him anywhere. So I wonder if he was there in 84. I know they found two sets of shoe prints. I'm not sure I buy that altogether. And it doesn't seem like there's any kind of DNA evidence left behind from the uncle. So I I don't know. I would assess from afar that the the uncle is likely the ringleader. Hmm. He's the one that's calling the shots. And here in 1984, you have three adults. Here, you know, you, you have a 19-year-old kid, Andrew, showing up at Justin's place. There's three adults. Mm-hmm. 
I have a feeling in all likelihood the uncle was there. Okay. The uncle saw, you know, saw something in his nephew Andrew where, hey, we can go and, and commit crimes together. Maybe this was the first one, or maybe Andrew said, Hey, I'm having this beef with this other kid. Mm-hmm. And the uncle says, Well, we're going to go handle that. And at this point, he's he's a full fledged adult. You know, he's mm-hmm. in his early thirties, thirty-five, mid thirties. Mm-hmm. You know, he probably has a fairly significant criminal history, whether or not it's recorded, you know, on his rap sheet, but he probably has been committing crimes during his adult life and is like, I'm going to, I'm going to show my nephew how it's done. Mm-hmm. And then they show up and, you know, they kill Justin and take the two women. That's what I think. Now, did the uncle participate in any of the sexual assault? It's possible, you mm-hmm. know, but it's also possible he didn't. Who knows? Who knows? We just know that you've got two families that are devastated by what these two guys did. And it was absolutely terrible. And it haunted this area. And thank goodness you have in 1984, you have people preserving, you know, this kind of evidence because you can look at this and say, well, he's dead. He's been convicted. He's been executed. Why does it matter? And it does matter. And we talk about this in our cases. It does matter. And it matters to the families, whether they're around or not. It matters to the community, too. What absolutely does. And and just because you have two, you know, you have similar crimes and you have this seemingly, you know, this connection with Andrew and showing up in both crimes and he's convicted of one, you can't just close the 84 case just because, well, it's similar and Andrew's in both. You still need to prove the case. Yeah. And it's important just from a public safety standpoint, because I have seen, I have fallen victim to this as well in terms of making assumptions that cases are related because they're in the same area at the same time and, and are similar. And it turns out they're not. Mm-hmm. You still have to go through and try to prove the case to a certain level where you're confident, yes, Andrew is the one that committed the 1984 case. And his uncle likely is involved, too, even though you don't have the DNA linking the uncle. But the families want that answer. This case was something else. Thank you for your insight, as always. This was less forensics, more just who would have done this and what were they thinking and how haphazard it was and finally getting some sort of sense of justice at the very end. Yeah. You know, and and this is just where here you have these two men, like you said, they devastated two families. And it's just like, why? For what? Yeah. And in some ways, this is where you just see uh, there are these evil people out there that will just commit horrific crimes. Yep. And we purposely don't have information on Andrew Six and his background just because I can't empathize in any way with somebody who would do this. So... Thank you, Paul. Hopefully we have another case that we can help solve together next week. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to it. This has been an Exactly Right production. For our sources and show notes, go to exactlyrightmedia.com slash sources. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Research by Marin McClashen and Kate Winkler-Dawson. Our mixing engineer is Liana Squillacci. Our theme song is by Tom Breifogel. Our artwork is by Vanessa Lilac. Executive produced by Karen Kilgariff, Georgia Hardstark, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow Buried Bones on Instagram and Facebook at Buried Bones Pod. Kate's most recent book, All That Is Wicked, A Gilded Age Story of Murder and the Race to Decode the Criminal Mind, is available now. And Paul's best-selling memoir, Unmasked, My Life Solving America's Cold Cases, is also available now.
Follow Barry Bones and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase Barry Bones merch.